get passages. It's quite a big chunk. In fact, there's eight little stories that I'm approaching from the angle of discipleship. I'm sure there's other ways we could approach them and different lessons we could draw out. But for the sake of time, I'm just really approaching it from the theme of discipleship. And I've kind of divided the passage up. Oh, well, last week, Chris, um, see if this thing works, left us up on the mountain having a discipleship buddy, as they say up north, chewing on that meat in the sandwiches that he loves so much. And if you remember what Jesus said to the disciples just before they went up, up the mountain, um, verses 21 of chapter 9, he says this, Jesus, sorry, verse 22, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, be killed, third day be raised to life. And then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it a man, for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? And then he talks about not being ashamed of the Son of Man. And so that, that kind of discipleship meat, if you like, is what we're carrying on eating, if you like, this week. Um, but we're actually coming down from the mountain. We're no longer up on the mountain of transformation. We're going to have to come down from the mountain. And what I've divided the passage into two, the first part is where Jesus comes down from the mountain and there's a few stories that go around that. And then the second, passage, the second part will be looking as Jesus sets off on the road to Jerusalem. And I've put up a painting from Raphael, one of the Ninja Turtles, but apparently a famous painter. I know nothing about art. You can ask someone else. But the reason I've chosen it is because it depicts Jesus in his transfiguration. This thing has a little pointer up there. And at the same time, we see the hubbub going along of this demon-possessed boy that the other disciples were helplessly trying to cast out and failing miserably. And those two things were happening at the same time. And I think that's very much a picture of discipleship for us. We would love to be up on the mountain up with Jesus having our buddies or living in tents, as Peter suggested. But the reality is we deal with, as what Jesus called, this unbelieving and perverse generation. And so we're going to look at what we can learn from that story. I went on a mission um, with Operation Mobilization when I was still a student back in 1989. Sounds like, you know, terrible saying that, but I'm that old. And we had this great, amazing week where 5,000 people came from all over Europe to worship God, be fired up for mission. We had speakers like George Verwer, Brother Andrew, Louis Palau. We had Floyd McClung of Youth with Mission. We had Graham Kendrick leading us shine, Jesus Shine every day. It was great, even that. And it was amazing, <laughs> that feeling we had together as this group of disciples going out to change Europe. And I remember you know, having a wonderful time that week. And then the following three weeks, I was on this mission team to France. Um, the heart of darkness, if you like, especially for an Englishman. But I was staying in Lyon in the south of France. Probably sounds quite nice, but we were sleeping on the floor in a school with squat toilets, as some of the French schools still have. We had to go out dressed up like this in the hot summer to do our evangelism. We were going around doing street sort of evangelism. And I suppose the abiding memory from that, those three weeks is doing a great presentation of the gospel, French people grabbing a tract, looking, throwing it on the floor. Not even getting five steps, and it was on the floor. 
they would watch the little show because it's quite interesting. Someone would juggle a peach and tell you about sin because la pêche the French speakers, and then people would suddenly disappear. As soon as Jesus was mentioned, they'd throw everything on the floor. And it was that sense of being on top of the world together and coming down to unbelief and not seeing a single person saved in three weeks of evangelism, door-to-door, street work. And that is very much our experience sometimes as disciples. Um, so as we look at this, this story, what can we learn? What does it mean to be part of this, this generation? Well, the story, as uh, Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down from the mountain, uh, this father comes running out of the crowd and says, Lord, help. He begs Jesus to heal him. And his son is demon-possessed. It tells us it's a pretty desperate situation. This demon is causing the, the poor boy to foam at the mouth. It shatters him. It says it hardly leaves him. This is ongoing. Uh, if you're a parent, you know the, the, the helplessness you feel when your children are sick. You know, the first, I think with our first, with Eric, you know, the first time he got a fever, we rushed him to the hospital. And they said, you know, don't come back unless it's three days and he's dying, basically. After, after the third one, if there's no blood and guts, you kind of think, well, he'll get better. But this guy is in a serious situation. It's his only son, Luke tells us. This is the, the, the future of the family. This is the welfare for the parents as they get old. And they're in a desperate situation. Mark adds that the demon throws this boy into the fire and into water, trying to destroy him. And so it's, it's a terrible situation. And it's the first thing that Jesus faces as he comes down from the mountain covered in glory. In Mark, it tells us as well that the crowd were amazed at him as he came down. So maybe there's this sense that he was still radiant from this transformation experience. And he's immediately faced with a crowd of unbelief saying, what's going on here? Mark tells us as well that the scribes were arguing with the disciples about this boy, arguing, why can't you cast out this demon? And maybe they were kind of getting into theological debates about this poor kid's suffering, as we sometimes do. So the father comes with this desperate cry, Lord, I beg you, heal my son. And there's a little dialogue in Mark that's not in Luke, where Jesus, he says to Jesus, if you can help me, please help me. And Jesus says, if? Of course I can, basically. Anyone who has faith, um, I'll answer. And, and, the, and the, the father, I love his prayer because it's the prayer, I think, that resonates most with me, is, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. And I think there's that mixture we deal with. Lord, I believe. I believe you can heal people. Help me in my unbelief. And that's the reality of the world we live in. Sometimes God answers in an amazing way, and sometimes he doesn't. And we have this mixture of living in and among people who don't believe and the battle with unbelief in our own heart. But Jesus is truly a majestic Messiah, and he casts out the demon with no trouble at all. But he's surrounded by this unbelieving world, and he gets very frustrated. I'm sure he's upset at the devil's attempt to destroy this family. He seems to be very frustrated with the disciples. He'd sent them out at the beginning of chapter 9, and they'd had a great old time healing people, casting out demons. But they get to this one, and they can't do it. And I think he's frustrated at the crowd, turning this into a theological debate. I said, well, you guys can't do this. What's up with you? Rather than trying to set this guy free through faith in him. And I, I think it really speaks to us. I've just been told that my cousin, who's uh, a couple of years older than me, is dying of cancer. She has six weeks to live. I would love to see God in, intervene. But we don't always see that. And that's the reality of this world. 
we have to hold on to our faith in the middle of unbelief and sickness and suffering. And I know we want to claim those amazing promises we hear, but we still have to keep going in the midst of the difficulties. And so we can praise God when we see glimpses of his majesty, but we have to carry on when we don't. And that takes faith and courage. And we see just at this point, I mean, I'm thinking if I'm in the disciples' shoes, Jesus has come down shining, his face is shining, he's just cast out an uncastable, outable demon, however you say it, and the disciples must think, this is it, we've got the real deal here, we've got the Messiah, we're on our way, we're going to kick out these lousy Romans, and we're going to restore Israel. This is what it's all about. And at that very moment, it says in, in um, the next bit, that Jesus actually says, hang on guys, you think I'm here for glory, I'm here for suffering. We have a suffering and humble Messiah. We have a glorious, majestic Messiah who is also a suffering and humble Messiah. And it was his destiny to suffer. He tells them, verse 43b of um, <coughs> chapter 9, it says, while they were all marveling at what Jesus had done, Jesus says to them, in verse 44, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Now, the kind of original way it puts it is, put these words into your ears. I kind of like that phrase when I've got three boys who do not listen when I'm telling them important things. They've kind of got a glazed look as they play the PlayStation. And Put this in your ears. Get it through you, thickheads. I think that's Jesus' tone here. I am on my way to suffering, not to glory, just yet. And the disciples, being good disciples, didn't want to know. They block that part out. And I think we do that as well. We, we are very great at claiming promises. And it's not wrong. The, Bible, the promises are there to encourage us. But there's also some lovely, wonderful, encouraging promises in John that say, you'll have trouble in this world. And we kind of ignore, we block that. I don't like that Jesus. I want the Jesus that is peace, prosperity, and happiness. But we have to have both sides. We have a majestic Messiah, but we have a suffering, humble Messiah. We live not on the mountaintop. We get glimpses now and again, praise God, but we live in the midst of an unbelieving generation. So he says, guys, this is my destiny, to suffer. Um, and the disciples didn't want to hear it. And it's incredible at this point, right in the narrative, they come up with this debate about who is the greatest. Um, that was the last one. Sorry. I'll just click on. Oop, I'm getting confused with my thing. So they have this debate about who's the greatest. And I can imagine that Peter, James, and John are particularly smug here. They've just been up the mountain with Jesus. They've just seen Moses and Elijah. Can you beat that? They've just come back from spring harvest, new wine, whatever, and they're spiritually abuzz. And the rest of the church, well, you know, struggling along, full of unbelief, not like us. They maybe had that kind of attitude, I am the greatest, or I think I will be. And it's amazing that they have this discussion on top of what Jesus has just told them about suffering. And so Jesus does this amazing object lesson of bringing up a small child who has no place of honor, no importance to them, and putting him right beside him. This is the place of honor at Jesus' side. This is what they're struggling for, scrambling for, fighting each other for. And here Jesus says, actually, this little child, the least among us, is at my side in the place of honor. And if you welcome him, and of course in those terms in the Middle East, when you welcome someone into your house, you 
Give them honor. You give them respect. It's not just come in, have a cup of tea. You know, it's come in, kill the fatted calf, bring out the best everything, and it's a place of honor. And he says, as you honor this little child, you're actually honoring me. And as you honor me, you'll honor the one who sent me. Um, we read that. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Verse 48. And so there's, instead of grasping for honor, struggling, trying to get there, Jesus says, give it to the least. Give the honor to the least. And he did the same thing. It says in Philippians 2, he didn't grasp equality with God, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. And I, I had up the quote there of Mother Teresa, someone who learned what it meant to honor the least, who worked among the slum, slums of Calcutta. And she says, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus. I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene. I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. And that to me speaks of serving the least and receiving the least. And indeed, she is great in the kingdom of God. Maybe not in terms of power, money, nothing like that. She lived in poverty, but she was great in the kingdom of God because she honored and served the least. And Jesus came to serve us and expects that of us. So we have this other picture of, of the disciples fighting over greatness, and it carries on. It's not separate. John has this funny comment. You know, in verse 49, they're talking about who's the greatest. Jesus brings the child, and then he says, well, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. In, in a closer translation, he doesn't follow with us. So he wasn't saying he didn't follow Jesus. He was just saying he's not one of our group. So we said, hang on a sec, you're not authorized. No, you can't. And that's a little bit of this picture. We all offer, in a sense, as Christians, the same life-giving water, but sometimes we want to claim it for ourselves. Jesus is our savior. We have the right church. I don't think Abbey does that particularly, Abbey Church. But it can be a tendency that we think we have the real deal. And Jesus is saying, you know what? If he's not against you, he's for you. There's a time when he will sort out the wheat from the chaff but that's the end of time. And that's what Jesus says, reserve your judgment for them. You're not qualified to judge. I can't judge you, you can't judge me, because we stand or fall before our own master, it tells us in Romans. So the disciples arguing about greatness then try and exclude someone, and Jesus says, actually, let him get on with it. He's working and serving me. So I see, I see this little the story we've seen so far from, chapter, uh, from verse 37 to 50. We've had three or four little stories that just give us an illustration of what discipleship is about. It's coming down from the mountain. It's entering into the reality of day-to-day in an unbelieving and crooked generation. It's dealing with pride. It's dealing with sickness, oppression, misunderstanding, jealousy, division. All those things are what we live in and what struggle in our own hearts. We're part of that unbelieving, wicked generation, even though we've been rescued out of it. We're not fully delivered until we we see Christ. And we're called to follow Jesus on that road down from the mountain. We're not called just to stay up there and have a great time. It would be nice for church just to be Sunday mornings. But we live Monday to Saturday in the world, and that's where our discipleship takes place. Not here, not this morning. This is part of it, but a small part of it. And so... 
we have this picture of a discipleship of reality in an unbelieving world, if you like. And in the second part, which I'm going to move on to quickly, we have joining Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 verse 51 is the most pivotal verse in this section. It says, The days as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Or as it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem in the, in the New Revised Standard Version. It's a phrase that just means he had absolute determination. There's a similar way of putting it in Isaiah chapter 50 where, it talk, where the suffering servant talks about his determination and he says, I've set my face like flint. And it's very much that, that in the context of his suffering and it's very much that feeling we get from Jesus here. This was his destination and there was nothing going to stop him from it. This was where he was going. Complete and absolute determination. But it's interesting to know that it as it, as it says there in the NIV, it was the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. That it was the days were being fulfilled when it was time for him to go to Jerusalem. And this gives us an idea. This wasn't just a casual, or I guess it's time for me now. I better get on with it. I've been doddering about three years. This was God's moment when he said, Jesus, this is when it happens. You're on your way to Jerusalem. This is part of God's plan from the beginning of time, his salvation epic masterpiece, if you like, the great mission that Jesus was sent on to redeem the whole world, and it's reaching its culmination, and Jesus says, the time has come. I'm going to Jerusalem, and nothing will get in my way. Not even the Samaritans, as we'll see in a minute. Um, and as we think about, there's four little stories as, as we think about what goes on here, and each of those will show, show us a little bit about what discipleship means. But I want to put this in the context of what it says there, it was the time for him to be taken up to heaven. Sometimes we focus on this was just Jesus going to Jerusalem to suffer. Actually, Jesus saw it in the context of being taken up to heaven. Heaven, going home, was his final destination. Jerusalem was a stop on the way. He was going from one mountain, the mountain of transfiguration, to another mountain where he'd be lifted up to heaven and back with his father. Jerusalem was a stop in the way. We sometimes see Jerusalem as the big destination. It wasn't. And that's the only, that eternal perspective is the only way we can really take on board discipleship. Because we'll see the cost of discipleship that Jesus shows us in this, this short passage is rejection, hardship, sacrifice, and determination or commitment. And it only makes sense within the context of an eternal perspective. There's no point being a disciple of Jesus if you do not have that eternal perspective. And that's why throughout the New Testament we're, we're encouraged, reminded to set our minds, set our hearts on things above. We're told in 2 Corinthians 3 that the light and momentary troubles, which we may think are quite big, and are just nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has set up for us. And that's from Paul, and we know the kind of sufferings he went through. I can't say much about it. I don't think I have a particularly suffering life. But Paul said it in his context, and I know it can apply to each of us in our context. I know it applies to my cousin. Um, my, my aunt writes and says, you know, she's got a great testimony there. But I know her husband is going to struggle if the six weeks that the doctors have given her prove to be true. It's, it's not easy, but we need that eternal perspective. Otherwise, we will not be able to face the cost of discipleship. 
And so I do want you to keep that in mind because, in a sense, Jesus doesn't pull any punches and I'm trying not to here either. So I know God has a plan for us. I know he wants to prosper us. But we also have to face this as his disciples. And so please keep that in that perspective of heaven, of the eternal, as we read through. So what happens first? The first cost of discipleship is rejection. Jesus sends his setup team to the Samaritan village. He's on his way to Jerusalem. There's a big group of them. Um, we know in the next chapter he sends out 70 people on mission. So you could be talking about a group of 100 people coming through to your village. And so they have to send people ahead. Look, we need food. We need accommodation. We need somewhere to sleep. You know, there's no holiday inn, no travel lodge. And they expect the village to show hospitality, which was part of the culture. They would obviously pay for their food and, and leave something behind that would benefit the village. But this Samaritan village just says, no, thank you. We don't want you if you're going to Jerusalem. If you've got your face set on Jerusalem, which is what it tells us in the text, um, in verse 53, the people there didn't welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. If we've got our face set to Jerusalem, we will face rejection as Jesus' disciples. Maybe from your family, maybe from the world around you, the people at work you try and share with, your colleagues, friends, neighbors, you will face rejection. That is the first cost of discipleship. But it's also the first sign of discipleship because Jesus was dead set on Jerusalem. He was not going to let this get in his way. I love the reaction of James and John, elsewhere called the sons of Zebedee, for good reason. When the disciples, James and John, it says in verse 54, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? And you might see in your notes a little comment saying, just like Elijah did. Well, Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 1, when the king of Samaria sent soldiers to get him, basically blasted them with fire a couple of times. The third group were a bit smarter and said, you know, please have mercy. But... This is kind of my reaction. You, know, you hear things happening in the Middle East about ISIS and all that. And to be honest, my first reaction is, Lord, blast them with fire. It, you know, there's no redemption for them. But who does Jesus rebuke? He rebukes the disciples. He doesn't bother about the Samaritans. They just move on to another village, presumably Samaritans too, and stay there. And he rebukes James and John and the way it says rebuke there is the same way he rebukes evil spirits elsewhere in the text. This is a strong word he's using for them. There's some kind of spiritual hardness there saying, if you're not with us, we're going to blast you. And when we face rejection, we can't react like James and John, saying, you know what, you hate me, I'll hate you. Jesus promises us that the world will hate us because it first hated him. If they persecuted me, says in John chapter 15, they will also persecute, persecute you. That's another promise we should memorize and take heart, hold of. It's real. It's there. Now, we don't face it to the measure of Turkey, Middle East, those kind of things, but it's still a reality that as we set our face firmly for Jerusalem to go along with Jesus on his purpose, we will be rejected. And I think what impresses me as I hear of some of the stories coming out is not so much that people don't deny Jesus in that situation, but that they also go on to forgive and say, you know, I forgive those who've killed my family, these members of ISIS. And that to me is tremendous that they could react in the way that Jesus reacts in this forgiveness and patience. And Paul says, you know, it, it wasn't just the seeing the Christian's lives. He, he describes it as Jesus' unlimited patience with him 
that led him to repentance. And we need to have that same unlimited patience with those who may reject us time and time again as we share the gospel. So we're called to bless those who persecute us and pray for them. And in Acts 8, it's interesting, maybe these same villagers are among those who are caught up in a revival in Samaria. Jesus' promise of salvation comes even to them, perhaps. So the first cost of discipleship, as we set our face to Jerusalem, is rejection. The second cost is hardship. A man jumps out from the crowd as they're walking along. Jesus, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, wonderful, I'm so encouraged. Another disciple, come along, what can I do for you? Actually, he says, you want to follow me? Well, let me tell you something. Foxes have dens, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You follow me, it means hardship. We have our plan of following Jesus, having a comfortable life, and Jesus has his plan where we go up and down through lots of different things. If you follow Jesus, you're not in for a cushy number. If you're serious about discipleship, you're in for hardship. And that's what this tells us here. We follow the homeless, penniless prophet from Nazareth. And we need to be prepared for some hardship. Another wonderful promise from John chapter 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble. So if we follow Jesus, it's because we say, you know what? I'd rather follow Jesus and be sick, penniless, out of work, rejected, struggle, than be comfortable without him. And that's the choice that faces us. Do you want to be comfortable without Jesus or go through hardship with Jesus? I think that's how he portrays it here. And he does promise us, yes, we'll have trouble, but his peace will be with us. In all the struggles, doubts, his peace will be there. So we have to face hardship if we want to follow Jesus. Another thing we have to face is sacrifice. Commitment to Christ over any other. And I've put this up for those of you who are social media fanatics. Following Jesus is not Twitter. It's actually following him. So Jesus, instead of someone coming to him and saying, Lord, I'll follow you, um, um, saying, Lord, I'll follow you, Jesus tells the man in verse 59, he says, you follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. As a yes, I'll follow you, but first. I've got to do something. And it sounds just like my boys. You know, when I tell them, time to quit playing in the garden, time to get off the PlayStation. Yes, Dad, but first, let me build this house on Minecraft. Yes, Dad, but first, let me blast the baddies. Yes, Dad, but first, but first. And so five minutes later, there's no more but first. There's get up or you're getting it. And we all have this tendency. There's a moment of decision, and I'm not talking about becoming a Christian necessarily, there are moments of decisions in our lives where we often say, yes, Jesus, but first, I just need to do this. And Jesus says, you know, that's not on. That sounds reasonable request. Let me go and bury my dad, my father. In Jewish tradition, not the Old Testament law, but in the tradition around it, if you were with a son and your father died, this obligation to bury him superseded any other requirement of the law. There was nothing more important than you doing that. So he was a, But I think we can gather from, from the story that he, his dad obviously hadn't died yet or he wouldn't even be there. But maybe his dad was close to death or maybe it was just his way of saying, you know what, when I've got my inheritance, I'm a bit more secure, then I'll follow you. And it's this but first that's true in our lives. 
Yes, Jesus, I am going to follow you, but first I need to graduate. Yes, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but first I need to get that job. I will follow you, but first I need to get married. I will follow you, but I need to get that promotion, and then I'll have more time. Yes, Jesus, I need to retire, and then with all that lovely time I have, lady of leisure, gentleman of leisure, I will follow you. There's always a but first. And Jesus says, actually, there's nothing, not even the most important Jewish tradition, more important than following me. Discipleship requires sacrifice. And it's not sacrifice to be miserable and to just, uh, just you know, imagine that somehow we never get to have fun. It's sacrifice to be able to proclaim the kingdom, Jesus tells this man. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So the next thing we see is determination or commitment. Another one says to Jesus, I will follow you. And then he says, but first, and again another but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And the context of this that I see, and at least for the people who would have been reading it in, in Luke's time, is it would have reminded them of exactly what Elisha said to Elijah when he called him to follow him. Elisha said, I'll follow you, but first let me go say bye to my family. And with all that's going on with Moses and Elijah through this passage, I think it's, it's quite okay to see this as this guy kind of saying, well, okay, I'll come and be an Elisha to you. I'll come and come to Jerusalem with you and follow you to fame. Um, but Jesus says, actually, hang on a minute. My call is more important than even that amazing Old Testament prophet. If you go back, you've lost it. You don't have a chance there's no time to go home and say goodbye. This is a greater call than the call of Elijah to Elisha. There is no call like this. You cannot put it off. Now, Natasha and I have been trying to buy a car um, the last month or two. have been going around to all these car dealerships with people with their shirts open and chains and stuff. But the more you see... <laughs> sorry if you dress like that. <laughs> But the more you, as you go and look at a car and think, hmm, hmm, if you don't buy it on the spot and make a commitment, we've found at least, if we don't buy it then, we're not buying it. Every time we said we'll go away and think about it, we thought, no, we're not buying that. Uh, the one time we did end, end up buying it turned out to be a lemon, and the guys had to take it back, and thankfully it has. But there's that point of decision. If we don't make it, it won't happen. Andrew was bemoaning the fact that it was raining because he didn't cut the grass yesterday when the sun was shining. Well, it's as simple as that sometimes. There's a moment of decision as we follow Jesus, and it comes again and again, and if anything becomes but first, we miss it, and we miss that opportunity. And Jesus says, you know what? There is no greater call. For a Jew, being like Elijah was kind of the ultimate. Moses, Elijah, you didn't get better than that. And Jesus said, you know what? My call is better than that, and more important. Don't put it off. So I want to kind of, uh, and yeah, obviously you cannot plow looking back. From the, he says, you, he kind of draws out the Elisha theme because Elisha was plowing when, when Elijah said this to him. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. If you've, I've never tried to plow, but what I have tried to do is ride a motorbike. And when you're trying to do the figure of eight, they tell you, don't look where you're going, look where you want to go, and the bike sort of miraculously follows you around. Wherever you look and turn that plow, that's where you end up going. And Jesus says, you've got a plow to, to, to go to Jerusalem, straight to Jerusalem, but we often turn it and say, well, actually, I think I need this, I want this, I would like that. Wherever we look, 
we end up going. And I think there is a danger that we turn Christianity, the road to Jerusalem, into, oh, sorry, there's a song, the road, a road, we turn the road to discipleship, the road of discipleship to Jerusalem, we've turned it into a road map to spiritual, emotional, and financial wholeness. God's will is prosperity. That, that's the gospel we present sometimes. There is truth in that, but it's not the whole truth. And that's not our focus. That may happen along the road, but our road is to Jerusalem with Jesus and following him. If that happens, praise God. And I don't think we go to this extreme in Abbey, but this is the extreme of you. You're supposed to be healthy. And it's kind of like saying, and you have to forgive me, God has a plan for your life. We do have that promise from Jeremiah 29. But it's not the plan we think it is. And I can't say that strong enough. God does not have a wonderful plan for your life where everything goes wonderfully and you are happy. It's not the Lego song, everything is awesome. It's not. Okay, that is not God's plan for you. His plan is to conform us to Christ. Romans 8.29 and that will take some suffering and learning obedience, just as it did for his very own son. In Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He, learned, he was made perfect through learning to obey. And I'm going to borrow a quote from some very spiritual people in the congregation who posted it on Facebook. We forget that God's primary goal is not changing our situations and relationships so that we can be happy but changing us through our situations and relationships so that we can be holy. If you want to know who Paul Tripp is, ask Darren and Juliet. Oh, I stole this quote from It's the first time I've put a quote up from a book I haven't read. It's the joys of Facebook. But Jesus' altar call is different from ours. Come to Jesus, be saved, be happy, be filled. And his is, if you're not serious, don't bother. I am not the answer to your problems. I am not your meal ticket. I'm not the way to personal fulfillment. If you follow me, it means rejection, hardship, sacrifice, determination. But follow me because we're going home to heaven. And it's a journey down the mountain through Jerusalem. So to summarize as we finish, discipleship is, as I've said, following him down the mountain, dealing with our world of unbelief, dealing with our sickness, with Oppression with suffering, pride, jealousy. It's following him on the road to Jerusalem, going through that suffering. And I like this quote from Oswald Chambers, that we've drifted far from our Lord's conception of discipleship. It's instilled in us to think we have to do exceptional things for God. We have not. We have to be exceptional in ordinary things. To be holy in mean streets among mean people surrounded by an unbelieving generation. We don't have to be doing these amazing things, traveling around the world for God, if you like. We just have to be his disciples in an unbelieving generation on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. Now, I'm going to close because it's coffee time and all the rest of it, but I just want to reframe this in one way. And that is, I've made this sound very much like it's about me following Jesus on that road to Jerusalem. It's just me and him. Well, I want to reframe it by saying discipleship is also about who I'm discipling and who is discipling me. Jesus did this to leave us a model, if you like. He walked with his disciples. And we're supposed to be walking with others and having others walk with us. So there's lots of questions you could be asking yourself about how to apply this. 
you know, your circumstances, tough circumstances, it's part of life, decisions you're making, how do you view those decisions through the frame of, dis- through the lens of discipleship? But I think it, you need to answer two questions. And this is it. Who is discipling you and who are you discipling? Because if neither of us is happening, something is missing, missing, according to what we see through the rest of the gospel. And so that's kind of where I'd like to leave this challenge. I think we understand the difficulties of living in this world. And we're on this road, but if we can't answer those two questions, we're really missing the point of discipleship. It's not just about me and Jesus and holy little quiet time. Who am I helping on the road and who is helping me? I really want you to think through those two questions as we close today. The cost of discipleship, but there's an eternal perspective. We don't know the future, what challenges, difficulties, struggles we face, but we do know this. When we, he is revealed, we will be like him. Or we will see him as he is. Amen.